0: next chapter podcasts.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of How I Got Greenlit. I'm your co-host, Ryan Gibson. Out this week is Alex Collegian. He's out on assignment. I miss him. I miss him to death. My partner in crime, my co-host. Today, we will be doing part one of our interview with the illustrious Gary Carter, television fame he's a mentor of alex's and myself he's been around the television world for many many years he's been around some of the biggest moments in television history actually and basically he's just a big brain good looking man too so here's part one with gary carter thanks for joining us again this week
2: hi and welcome back to how i got greenlit i'm alex collegian
1: i'm ryan gibson
2: we're here with Gary Carter, an old friend of both of ours, uh, our former boss's 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 boss, if I'm getting that ah,
1: right. Ah,
0: Top ah. dog. <laughs> <laughs> Top. Hello, and you were friends with me, even so, right?
2: Well, yes, because we're lick spittles and and, and boot polishers. (laughs) That'll get you very far.
0: That'll get you very far in Hollywood, yeah.
2: (laughs) Exactly. Unfortunately, Gary is joining us from Amsterdam because because the stink of Hollywood only fades when you get past (laughs) London.
1: He only had Um, to go halfway around the world (laughs) to get away.
2: Uh yeah we, we we all met at uh, Fremantle we were part of Fremantle uh Ryan and I met at, at actually at the same place Fremantle North America and Gary uh was a very senior fellow there uh I believe we met you when you were president of creative net or no I think we met you when you were a group COO um,
0: No I think I think I think actually I was trying to reconstruct it I think you met me accurately when I was president of creative networks and I Only became group COO later. I think because that was the time you were you were in development in Fremantle North America, right? You were Yes, that's right.
2: We we were yes. We we were part of. um, It was kind of a fascinating thing, you know, because Fremantle is an overseas company. You were bringing you all. The company was bringing a um, a more a less American concept of like a uh, a lab approach, right? A collaborative approach where a bunch of producers were brought together and rather than silo them and their individual deals, we were um,
0: collectively employed,
2: collectively employed, but more importantly, there was a a structural um, uh, impetus to try to get us to work together or to present ideas to each other or collaborate whenever possible.
0: Yes, I was on a mission to transform the creative profile of Fremantle, which of course has a long, tra- you know, it has a long and illustrious tradition and certainly did that. Its, its roots go right back to, um, I don't know, the company that made Metropolis in Germany, right? So it, it's it's very old at its oldest, but it had become... Is that right? Is yeah, that yeah, yeah. the real
2: DNA? It's been around yeah, yeah. that long? Yeah, no yeah absolutely.
0: And, and I, I was on a mission to rehabilitate the creative profile, because it had started to rest very firmly on either historic IP, so the formats of the Mark Goodson catalogue, the Price is Right, those kinds of things, or it was forming partnerships around intellectual property. So a deal with Psycho, Simon Cowell, for the production of Got Talent, or with Simon Fuller for Idols. And I believe very, very strongly that that creativity should be everywhere, right? Not wanting to sound like Mao, but it should bloom everywhere. Um, And I don't believe in centralized development. I believe in networked development, in decentralized development. And really what I was trying to encourage, I guess, in those days was um, uh, a global network of teams and individuals who were able to collaborate at a distance, right? But that was the early days of that project. Mm.
1: It was a, I was, I was very, I was young then, but it was, uh, eye opening. It was an eye opening experience and it was, I generally had fun every day. It
0: was, Well, I think that's super important, frankly. Otherwise, what the fuck else is it all for?
1: Uh, not mine. I'm allowed to swear on
0: this show. I'm allowed to swear on this show. Yes. You you absolutely. Please. (laughs) By all means.
2: I usually use up our, our ration before this, but, um, I remember we sat in a uh, conference room, uh, and um, you told us all, and this was not only the creative producers like us, but also the executives. Uh, you were really trying to uh, change the way people thought. I, I got the impression, uh, and you and you you brought a syllabus. You said, "I want you to read this book called Flow." Yes. And is that still? Uh, tell us about still, flow. Still and a bible. In- so yes, and most importantly, pronounce the the, the writer's name. <laughs> right. So we're to- we're talking
0: about the late and very great Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. Right. Yes. Um, who was at the University of Chicago for a memory? Now, unfortunately, late. Um, and his field of study uh, was happiness, and in particular, in why in the same circumstances. Some people are unhappy, and some people are happy, and how how they are fulfilled. And he was the one who really identified what we have commonly um, come to think of as the flow state, right? That immersive state in which time dissolves, in which you have a a sense of liberation from your ego, thank God, you're you're focused on a shared goal, the rewards are intrinsic, not extrinsic, so motivation-based, not payment-based. And that... He then took that model and and understood it to appear everywhere there was what he described as optimal human experience, right So a flow state appears in good sex but not in bad sex. It appears in extreme sports when you when you operate them at a at a high level or even just mountaineering and swimming and those kinds of things on stage when you're when you're performing. Maybe we will enter a flow state here maybe. But what he crucially identified is that the flow state is central to creative output, and that there is a there is a loop, if you like. The reason why people like us get addicted to creativity is a similar reason why some some exercise junkie gets addicted to certain kinds of exercises because the flow state is involved, yeah and and that the parameters of the flow state, I I argue, and I still argue and still try to achieve it, should be what the leader of creative teams is trying to create for the people they lead. So my challenge as the leader of a team developing a show is to create a flow state for you to enter into in order to get optimal creative outputs. And to go further than that, if you follow Cheksempa High, you should all seek flow states like playing music Mr. legion you should all personally seek flow states because they make us happier right So indeed so there, for me there is this direct relationship between my creative output and my sense of well-being and that's why being trapped in what in Hollywood you would call development hell is so ultimately debilitating because it makes you unhappy at an existential level right?
2: It's it's also that you're so close yet so far. If I if I was in, in a service station and I was writing a screenplay at night and I could dream big, that's fine. But when you're so close, we're one phone call away from meeting the head of CBS or this or that or the other, and then they just won't go. It's just like it's like this, some stage of hell.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And 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 that specific point, Alex, is what Mahai identifies as the criticality of immediate feedback in a flow state. And the reason why you get so unhappy when head of CBS won't see you is because you are not getting the feedback you need on the project that you're doing at the time that you need it. So the other thing, while I'm dispersing my great wisdom, (laughs) is that it's a responsibility of people leading creative teams to prioritize giving feedback on ideas.
2: Yes. Yes. And, and I, I, I picked that up even then because the, our side, and when I say our side, I mean the creative producers that were not employees, they, they had what we call development deals, which is a very cool Hollywood thing. I guess it's a, a worldwide entertainment thing. It basically means you're, you're we're going to rent your brain for a certain term for a certain amount of money. And whenever you have an idea, you will bring it to us first. And if we like it, we will work on it with you and we will all try to make a
0: show. And we'll try and pay you lots of money to make the ideas good. But we miss the point that if we made the experience of developing the ideas better, you would develop them without the extra financial incentivization.
2: And you would have loyalty to us because it's such a, an incubator of warmth and, and sunshine and light. Did, were you always like that before you tried acting,
0: when you were a child? Like certain people are just old souls. Were you always like that? Yes, I think so, because I, I'm endlessly curious, and that's part of the profile, of course, yes. of, of creative um, and, people. Any, any artists, yeah. Yeah. And any artist, yeah. And I believe that we spend a lot of time floundering around, so I can give you one of my big bugbears, right? when I When people say to me, what we need to do is to improve, creativity in the organization. My first question is always, what is creativity? Because actually there's a lot of work, there's a whole discipline called creativity studies. But most people in Hollywood are paid very highly to they're intelligent people paid highly to think very superficially. So they don't actually look at what the data says about creativity. They would rather just vaguely conflate innovation with creativity when they don't really grapple with what they they themselves mean. This was a fight that John DeMall and I used to have often. John DeMall is? Uh, so John DeMall is the founder of, one of the two founders of the mighty Endemol, and as it were, the man behind Big Brother and a very significant person in my career, and the dominant uh, media mogul of the Netherlands and and in part of Europe. So I'm sure he'll crop up in the conversation. Probably
2: we'll, one of the heads on the reality Mount Rushmore. Absolutely.
0: Argue. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And his, his, yeah, we used to have that argument all the time. He used to say things to me like, where is the next big brother? And I used to say, well, if we knew where the first big brother came from, we'd be able to go and get you another one. <laughs> right. But because nobody stops to ask in, to analyze in what circumstances big brother ar- arose, it's futile to say go and come back with another big brother so do you want the, do you want the I, I think line? it's
2: time I think it's time Ryan do you think it's time
1: yeah.
0: Uh,
2: the origin story of my favorite supervillain, Gary Carter. I always have been trying to come up with with a spy movie that I can cast you as the the puppet master character. Um, So you are from South Africa. You were born in South
0: Africa. Uh, Not quite, Alex. I'm actually actually from Zimbabwe. I was born on the border between Zimbabwe and Mozambique uh, on a tea farm. And when I was about three years old, my family moved to South Africa, and I grew up in a hideous, I I can say this, in a hideous little city, self-styled at the time the Detroit of South Africa, as as if that should be a recommendation, (laughs) dominated by the motor car industry. Recently changed its name to KaBeKa. if you could say that for me, and, and known fondly amongst my friendship circle as the Bay of Dismay. So I grew up in the Bay of Dismay at the height of apartheid. Um, I so grew up in a fascist a show, by right? The way. I grew up in a grew up in a fascist country. Uh, I originally, for what it's worth, wanted to be a ballet dancer, but that got bullied out of me in a fascist, macho, macho country. And so I ended up becoming an actor. Not that it stopped me screwing men, obviously. But hey, whatever. <laughs> and I went from. I went from. They didn't
2: bully that out of me. Let me tell you. Yeah.
0: Right. Some things don't change. And I went from there straight into the National Theatre, into the ensemble, the fixed ensemble of the National Theatre in the last days of sort of Stalinist culture in South Africa. What do I mean by that? There were 25 actors on the payroll. There was an entire orchestra on the payroll. There was an entire opera company on the payroll. And there was an entire ballet company of 52 people on the payroll. And we were all housed in this enormous sort of quasi-Lincoln centre in Hmm. Cape Town. Wow. Wow. that would have been yeah that would have been my life right i probably would have i would have stayed an actor and and directed and i had fantastic time except that i got deported by said fascists in 1985 right what for oh not exactly for being nelson mandela but just for being a bit out too outspoken in my opposition to the regime and i as i had british parents i had a british passport but i had permanent residence in South Africa. So they couldn't throw me into South African prison, but they could tear up my residence permit and send eight white military policemen to march me on an airplane, which they did. did
2: was it your art? Were you were you programming uh, no, pieces I was that just
0: were... No, I think uh, it's hard to know, right? Because uh, it was very irrational. And so I'm not sure that I would believe. It was, I think, because I was... A relatively well-known public face, and I wouldn't shut up. Right. So I think you'd it was be that in an interview,
2: and you'd you'd criticize the wrong mm. people mm. in public. Yeah, okay.
0: exactly. So then I arrived in London, and here's the here's like the origin story. So I'm sitting sitting. I rent a room in some in some place in the far east end, and the next door neighbor phones me from her office one day when I'm sitting there doing nothing, thinking, what the fuck am I going to do now? And she said, "Um, you can type, can't you? And I said, yes, I can type. These were in the days of actual typewriters. One of the few good things my mother did for me uh, was give me a typewriter at the age of six and say, figure it out for yourself. So she, she, she always maintained that if you could type, although she imagined it would be on typewriters, you would never have an issue, right? She thought it was a core skill. So, and she wasn't wrong. So I said, yes, I can type. And they said, well, and you've got a nice voice, right? Yes, I've got a nice voice, haven't I? She said, our receptionist has just walked out. We need somebody for two weeks to answer the phone and do a bit of light typing and and run the reception area. We'll pay you cash in hand. Come. So I made my way there. I I didn't even ask her what they did, right? I, I mean, I didn't know her very well. She was like the next door neighbor. I'd met her socially a couple of times. And it turned out to be an agency run by the brother of an extremely famous British comic called Tony Hancock, who had made the transition from music hall to radio and ultimately to television and had a famous television show in Britain called Hancock's Half Hour in the 50s and 60s, which famously emptied the pubs on a Friday night, right? They were just empty because everybody was watching Hancock. And Roger was a legendary agent who represented the top 10%, let's say, of comedy, writing, producing, and directing. And so we're talking about all the Pythons, all the goons, Peter Cook, Dudley Moore. I mean, I could just go on and on, and some obviously more English celebrities, more famous in Britain. And I went to work there for two weeks, and I stayed for 10 years, and I became an agent. And I started, he, Roger, was pioneering the format industry. I worked very closely with him. And because I was so artsy, I wanted to represent theater writers, and nobody makes money out of theater writers. He said, well, you can do that. But in order to compensate financially, as far as the agency is concerned, you need to get some extremely commercial clients. And I couldn't work out what that would look like until I thought, oh, maybe I could represent a company. That was doing lots of business, and if I could represent the company, I would be bringing in a fair revenue stream. So I started representing a game show company called Action Time, which was then trying to import game, American game shows into Britain. And the first deal I did was, in fact, the importation of Catchphrase to Britain. And and so that was ten years of my of my life. And and there was no progress, right? I mean, I did it, I got better at it. It broadened my network in the non-scripted television community, which later became super useful, obviously. But it didn't deliver me any returns financially, certainly, but it 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 did give me knowledge and experience. And Roger and his partner Brian Codd were key mentors to me. Like, you know, and he They used to walk into my office. I can still recite the aphorisms. They'd say things like, remember, credit is free, be generous. Then they'd walk out. They'd come back in and they'd say, "Uh, copyright is power, remember. And then walk out. So all of these things that later became demonstrably true to me, right? So the giving of generous credit is both free and earns you enormous rewards, right? As you know, when you say, Gary Carter appears on How I Got Greenlit, right? You give me the credit and you get more, more goodwill and it's free, so do it. But that's not how the industry thinks. And, and he used to say, they used to say things like, always do exactly what you say you're going to do. And you're only as valuable, you're only as valuable as your reputation and the test is who will pick up the phone when you call, right? So really good, good grounding. Just no life money advice. Yeah, <laughs> great. Yeah, really. For a young real, person, yeah. Yeah, really. And then at the tail end of those ten years, I got the offer from from Planet Twenty Four, and that was brokered by Trish Canane, who was uh, until last year, I think, the executive producer on American Idol. She spotted me. And she came to me and she said, phone this number. And she gave me a number. And when I phoned the number, it was Bob Geldorf. And that changed everything. So two years at Planet 24, survivor, critically. While I was at Planet 24, I got an offer from John de Mol to, to come to the Netherlands. My husband and I, now husband, not then, because obviously it was illegal, because faggots couldn't get married in those days. So I came to Holland because we wanted to adopt a child. And in Britain... Gay couples couldn't adopt, but they couldn't hear And I came here because he had a secret project and had come across me. And that secret project was Big Brother. I stayed for six years, um, worked very, very closely with him. He transformed my career and my life and gave me a massive nervous breakdown. And at the end of the nervous breakdown, <laughs> you know, they often come together, working for <laughs> moguls. Um, at the end of the massive breakdown... Fremantle came calling and Tony, Han- Tony Cohen, who was then CEO of Fremantle, came to Holland to see me. And I was so not interested that I cycled to breakfast with him. I said, in my shorts, I think, I, and looking particularly unkempt, Which is I'll, a very
2: Dutch thing to do, right. you Cycle everywhere. Yes. Yeah,
0: and, and, and he said, I'd like you to come and be director of development at Fremantle. And I just said, that's not going to happen. I said, that's impossible. I said, first of all, that's a nonsense title. What, what does it possibly mean? I'm going to decide on the flowers in the office? <laughs> internationally. I said, secondly... So By the way, I, that's
2: one of the careers you said. I'm sick of television. I'm going to get into flower arrangements. Well, do you remember that question
0: I am a trained florist. I'm now trained as a florist. So if you, if you ever get so married again, Alex, man. let me know. Anyway, I, just, I, said to him, I said to him, I'm not interested. I said, you, you, you don't give me the feeling that you win. And I've just spent six years working with a man who's obviously winning. Uh, and there was a long pause. And then he played the master stroke. He said, that's very interesting. He said, now, what are you going to do about it? and that started my 10-year working relationship with Tony. After that, when Tony resigned from Fremantle, I left, I went to to join Shine, so I went to work for Alex Mahon and Elizabeth Murdoch. And by this time, by, by the time I left Fremantle, I was group COO, so unusually I had... I had both creative and commercial responsibilities inside the organization. Tony had sent me off to Harvard, so I was particularly well-schooled in capitalism. I went to join Liz and Alex. I, I oversaw all their Northern European production companies from Holland to, health, uh, to Finland, ran their licensing group. And then when Endemol and Shine merged, that was like too much, too much deja vu. And I stayed three months. And two, three months to... It's to like getting
2: me. back together with your ex or something.
0: You know? And this, Hey, yeah. I've got a great one for you. Roger Hancock. Roger Hancock. This is a great one. Used to say, young man, don't sleep with your exes. Don't go back to your previous employers and never, ever take on your ex-clients. He said, it's very, very tempting but it's never as rewarding as it was the first time, <laughs> right? It's just, and literally, that's quite yeah. like great advice, right? So then I then I I left Endemol Shine after I did the merger between all the European production companies in any territory, and I decided I needed to change my life completely. I that's not entirely true. I still I still bore my clients in the television industry with my over professorial attitudes. I work with Channel 4. I consult for Red Bull. I'm on the board of a Finnish production company. I'm on the board of a UK research company. But what I do in my day job now is I am part of the management team of a Dutch research institute that researches the relationship between technology and culture. That's what I do. Endlessly professorial.
2: And what... That's kind of fascinating, but well, well, I want to say you are unique among individuals in that you actually went to Harvard, and it's not in your bio. So kudos
0: to you. Well, thank you. I didn't, to be clear, I didn't do the MBA because life's too short. But I did, I did do something called the Advanced Management Program, which is a high speed, a high speed MBA done over thirteen weeks or something, and, and which Harvard introduced after the war as a way of preparing returning officers for business. So, so it was a short, sharp punch. I've never worked as hard in my life. And I did sometimes feel like I had a hose from the wellspring of capitalism forced down my throat. And you can tell, you can tell from my generally Bolshevik attitude that I don't always hold with that kind of shit. But then I can say I'm a socialist and around here everybody's going to go, yeah, great, right? Which obviously in America I couldn't say and walk down the street.
2: Tell me um, a resonant memory uh, from your childhood of living under apartheid. What is that like?
0: In 1976, I was in my first, my second year at high school, and my mother took me to Britain for the first time for a summer holidays. So, a South African holiday, summer holiday. So, June, July. And we were in Britain for six weeks. Television only came to South Africa around 1975. And at the time, it being a fascist country, there was only an hour a day, and it was divided by white language, so English Afrikaans. And it was, of course, heavily censored and controlled. It was basically propaganda. While I was in Britain, the Soweto riots of 1976 broke out. Soweto, under fire
1: the country's largest township had a dark cloud hovering over it.
0: And this was when um, high school children started to protest in the streets that their education was below the quality of that provided to white students and that they were being forced to study not in their own indigenous languages or native languages but in the language of the oppressor. Afrikaans. And the response of the South African regime was to send the army in and then mow these kids down. And it sparked huge unrest in South Africa. And I saw this unrest on television. And if I had been in South Africa, I would not have seen it, right? Because it was heavily sensitive and controlled. So it it was a real moment of cognitive dissonance. I, I, to my embarrassment, perhaps looking back on it now, I would go around denying that what you were seeing on South Africa was, on television was actually South Africa, because I had never seen that. So it had, I believed it was all fake. It was sort of moon landing, conspiracy theory, theory stuff. I went back to my high school, I, a small high school of 400 white students in a godforsaken town in a dusty 1960s suburb. And just after I got back, the term started, and we had to do these presentations in front of the class about what we had done in our summer holidays. Now, I was with my class teacher, whose name gloriously was Devet Woollefere. Devet is um, Afrikaans or Dutch. It means the law. Okay, that was his first name, the law. So I was at the front of the class, and I was talking about my trip to Britain. And obviously, because it had concerned me, I started to talk about what I had seen And I got as far as saying, so I think there's something going on here in this country that we're not aware of, and it can't can't be right. And he went ballistic, right? Ballistic. I mean, took off from the ground and started screaming from the back of the room um, I can't even use the term, right? But st- basically started screaming, implying, well, I, can I use the Afrikaans term? Yes. He, he, he pointed at me, foaming at the mouth, and started screaming, you're a kafir booty, right? Which means you're, you're the brother of black people. There's a cruder version of that, Right. 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 And and jabbing the air and screaming at me, "You don't know what you're talking about. You know nothing about the black danger." You and really went. And I remember what standing at the front of the class, fourteen years old, watching my classmates swivel between him and me as I tried to argue the point with him. And then it dawned on me that there was something going on here. Right, there was something going on. Twenty years later. I discovered that he was a Bureau of State Police spy who had been planted in the school by the regime to identify people like me at very early ages. And that, Alex, if you were a conspiracy theorist, you would say, by the time we get to 1985 and I'm deported, there is a line between those two that's
2: when the file moments. was opened on you
0: that's what it means that's what it means to grow up in a fascist regime under apartheid
2: so the term big brother is is uh, resonant with you absolutely and and do you feel that is that when it dawned upon you or maybe later on you realized the power of television the power of the visual medium to... So I
0: was never interested, I'm still not, and you may have heard me say this, I'm not interested in television, right? I'm interested in ideas. And I'm interested, (laughs) I'm interested in the relationship between ideas and culture and culture and ideas. And that's why in the context of the research institute that I work at, I'm interested in the relationship between technology and culture and culture and technology, because that's again about ideas. I... My original belief was that the platform for my interest in ideas would be the theatre. But I realised, of course, that's a pathetically small platform. I mean, it doesn't reach many people. So you could say I got into television because it's the, in our generation, my generation, it was the largest possible platform for a dialogue about ideas and culture.
1: Do you, uh, Gary, do you think that, you know, the internet being the next kind of platform or format and the kind of um
0: or you know all these companies like
1: yeah like google consider themselves advertising companies do you think in your estimation your brilliant estimation and well-educated well-traveled it, is it something that can be saved it's something that can be seen as a positive instead of like a dumping ground like a, the
2: a whole well, just the, the the the. I think what he's saying is that the internet started as a flat plane, and and inevitably we bring in these higher hierarchical structures, i.e., the clustering of uh, the fang uh, power over this what started as a fairly democratic uh, mm. connectivity. So you, I think protocol. you've
0: just you've just said it, Alex. Right. So the 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 problem with The problem with where we are with the Internet in terms of the research institute that I that I work at is that there are no public spaces on the Internet.
2: Right. It's all for profit. Yeah.
0: And we argue, and I personally believe, that there should be civil spaces on the internet that are not that do not require the transactions that are common in surveillance capitalism. So in other words, we have a huge campaign in the Netherlands to stop the education system foisting Microsoft and Google on students from the age, as soon as they join, they start at school, because the data Google is going to collect from a five-year-old, if we're starting at five years old, and run through their entire life, is a far greater harvesting uh, of, of that value at an age when those kids can't make that decision understanding the implications. So yes, you're exactly right. The problem with the internet is the lack of democratic spaces. In order to achieve a democratic space on the internet, you have to go way down, way, 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 way down the iceberg of the infrastructure, right? Because when you start to analyze it and think about it, if you want a democratic space, where do you start with the cabling, with the browser, Arpanet. with ca- yeah. the
2: right? You start with the, the whatever vestigial copper wiring of ARPANET still exists somewhere deep down in the in the, the base. And this
0: is what we call the the public stack, right? So how do you move towards a democratic space on the internet that is all the way down through the iceberg? And one thing is for sure um if we want a just civil society we need to fight for it right and and we may yet if i were to be inflammatory say we may yet get to the stage of revolution but at this stage you can do it elsewhere you can fight for it elsewhere
1: I was just going to say, it's crazy how people, you know, when I was a kid, people talked about the dangers of television and the dangers that, of allowing children to watch television and all like how uh, how it's going to rot your brain. And now people let their kids have a phone at five and my I, mine does not. Um, and there's so much more um danger out there that is almost i mean everyone knows like yeah there's pornography and all that but there's so much more danger out there than you can one can ever imagine from the three channels that we had plus yeah it's
0: it's extraordinary isn't it and um no one talks about it hmm. and it's the
1: future of entertainment it is like well ryan
0: you know i on that subject on that subject yeah it's Uh, It's one of the futures. It's one of the futures. We would say say that. We (laughs) would say. um, I think that I, when I first started to understand some of the implications of the internet in the mid '90s, I was convinced that the great turning point in mass entertainment had been reached, and that. And I dedicated several years to trying to encourage people or to create the circumstances in which people would develop the game that would unite all what we would today call platforms, right? Um, I even got funding from the European Union to start working on it, but it never went anywhere. I So my idea was that there should be an entertainment show, a game that you could experience on all media forms, so that at that time that was like the internet, the radio, the television, the movies, and print, and that game would harness all of those platforms, let's call them for a moment, or distribution media, and no one of them would be dominant, so that however you chose to engage with this game, the experience would be as rich as if you engaged with another form of it and i'm frankly i mean genuinely really really disappointed with what has become of the entertainment possibilities of the network of networks i just think it's crap basically in a creative sense right so in a in a in terms of what the three of us have done historically it's so thin in conception and so fundamentally unimaginative and uh yes i'm sure it makes a lot of people a lot of money and i know a lot of people engage with it so i know it gets more viewers and blah 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 blah, blah. but in terms of looking for supermodels it hasn't delivered right
1: it feels like there could be so much more exactly there. like exactly. there there's so much creative space the the mm. the vis the vitriol and the hate and all that stuff when it could be something that is just a, an amazing experience yes. like you yeah. said and it's like we're 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 not we're not running it to its full potential at no. all like not even using 10% of its creative yeah. potential
0: technology presents itself and technologists present technology as if it's both natural and neutral and it's neither of those things right and so the 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 assumptions behind the technology should always be critically questioned right because well you should just be in the habit of asking why and and you should be in the habit of asking why when confronted with fascism with any regime in fact you should just continue to ask why because the assumptions the assumptions are what you need to get at, not the deployment of 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 anything in particular. So yes, I can fall in love with a mobile phone, but the question is, why should I have one? What's on it? Why is it on it? Why are you putting it on my phone? Why can't I take it off my phone? Why? Yeah. Well, well, well. That yeah. That 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 too. But let's blame let's blame designers for let's blame designers for that. But I, but I think that there is genuinely um, we are not made happier by technology. Our circumstances are our immediate the immediate problem may be answered by technology, but we're pretty crappy as a race at making good decisions, and we certainly cannot account for entangled. Uh, implications of something. So we overestimate the speed of change, we underestimate the impact. So we invent the automobile, and we roll it out in America, and we don't imagine climate, the climate crisis. And we certainly don't Im- imagine that we're launch- launching motel franchises.
2: Right? right Or or big boy restaurants, yeah. The trickle-down. The, 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 trickle the down. Un, unintended mm-hmm. uh, consequences of technology yeah. is one of my yeah. favorite subheadings, right?
0: Exactly. And people don't stop to think that technology caused a lot of this, the unforeseen consequences of technology. Yeah, And now we'll this.
2: sell you the cure to what we sold you as, <laughs> as the last cure. <laughs> you have been either directly worked for or in the room with some of the most influential, creative, smart people in, in the creative arts, let's say
1: have had a great effect on our society.
2: And I, and I don't want to, I mean, you can probably, because you were with him a while, but I I think of a John DeMall. Um, when you said the nervous breakdown part, what I, I'm always fascinated with, um, how do people that are so transmorphative to our society, like a Steve, I would argue he's like a Steve Jobs, of television mm-hmm, guy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, as a person, I don't want to know about technology. I don't want to know about his training just as a, a one-on-one it's you and him in the room and you're, you're learning from him. Is, is he iconoclastic? Is he normal? Is he bombastic? Is it, is he moody? Is he super productive for like 72 hours and then he has a 48-hour refraction period where mm. he like weeps John is his- the
0: most, John is the most driven, determined to win person I have ever met in my life. He is... His appetite for winning is unparalleled in my experience. and he he would probably describe himself as creative so would lots of people in the industry but i don't think of him like that i think his actual skill is editorial he can spot something and so the origin story of big brother is a is a is a meeting between three executives including john or four executives uh, and we were had been working on the development of, a, of a, an idea in the kind of reality domain, sort of-ish. It had a live component. It was about real life, in which a group of people would pitch to the country what they would do with a sabbatical. And the audience would decide who was going to get the money to have the sabbatical. It would be a group of them. And we would follow them during the year in real time as they had that sabbatical. And right at the end of the evening, somebody started talking about the the biosphere project in which a group of American scientists lived in a closed ecological system for a year. Mm-hmm. We, we went home. Next morning, John phoned me up and he said, I, I want to talk to you about last night, which I knew he would do. He doesn't sleep much, so it was an early phone call to answer one of your other questions. So I've had meetings with John de Maul at three o'clock in the morning, just whenever he feels <laughs> you should come to his house for a meeting. <laughs> and he, basically, I was expecting him to go back to the sabbatical, and he said, tell me about this biosphere thing. And what if it wasn't a sabbatical, it lasted a year, but they couldn't get away from each other? That's where that's where it starts. That was right? the and, and and that ability to just go, Ting, what that it's this. It's not this, it's this, it's here. And then to put enormous chips on the table, three years of of funding, teams of people working on it. He's he's a man of conviction. At that time he didn't mind mistakes because he believed that mistakes were a sign of trying. He just wanted it to go really fast and he was going to torch anybody who got in his way, but you could have disagreements with him. So I'm not sure that that's the case now uh, because he has never spoken to me since I left. Very John. Um, <laughs> How do you? But, but yeah, basically. Um, but he did, in those days we used to have quite rip roaring arguments Um and you could do that as long as you really knew your stuff and you were prepared to stand your ground. And he he said to me one day, he said, you know the reason I like you? I said, no, why do you like me? He said, because you're the most macho gay man I've ever met. <laughs> mm. So you can imagine what the fights were like, right?
2: <laughs> and the epithets that were thrown. Mm-hmm. Um, it, well, the reason I ask is because the name of the show is how I got greenlit, right? So mm-hmm. obviously, I, I consider you a... a great uh achiever in your in your in your chosen field and that's part of the reason why we wanted to have you on but it's good to i'm trying to you know a lot of this is we constantly are trying to figure out like like what is the formula how how, can i follow the steps and it sounds like when you describe mr demal that a lot of that is inborn he doesn't sleep much. He's very competitive. I'm not recommending
0: like, not sleeping quite the reverse, right? The research shows you should sleep
2: for, yeah, for cognitions. Mm. But, but what I mean to say is, is like that he didn't, he didn't train himself like Bruce Wayne into Batman. Like some of that, some of those ticks or, or little quirks are, are, it seemed like he came out
0: that way. He did. Yeah. He did. Look, let me just move, move slightly. You're, your excellent show, and this is a particularly good episode, is called How I Got Greenlit. <laughs> and and that premise, as I understand it, has to do with at the the moment you sold a show and you realized that, as it were, it, it, it of you your career. We're asking right. you to define okay. it, and,
2: that's, and I well, want to get to that because we never actually said right. this so, was the moment Gary became Gary. You know? So
0: the moment, to be precise, is connected to Big Brother mm-hmm. John Demol called me into the office and said, I need you to go to America, to Hollywood, and I need you to come back in two weeks, having solved, sold Big Brother to an American network.
2: And that's it.
0: There's no it? plan. That's so a one-liner. Get it the, done. Yeah. So I said, I said to him, um, why me? <laughs> And he said Do you want the honest answer to that question I said yes he said cuz you're the only person in this whole building who's ever been to Los Angeles he said so I assume because I'd lived there for a year doing survivor he said i'm assume you know where to start right the actual moment was at the at natp must have been 2000
2: which is a big reality conference
0: yeah and I was walking. It was in New Orleans, and I was walking down the down the aisles, and 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 there was a, a sort of feeding frenzy brewing up around Big Brother, right, whipped up by my great friend and mentor, Jeannie Newman, the attorney, and Mark Itkin, the now retired agent, then yeah, at Louis Morris, another
2: big personality. And
0: and I was walking down the aisle, one of the aisles, and Stephen Chow who at the time had gone from Fox Network to USA Networks and is now entirely in an online business, Stephen Chow walked towards me and went down on his knees in the aisle and said, what do I have to do to get Big Brother?
2: Wow. Stephen Chow was was a hitter then. You're basically saying that, like a president of Hollywood was saying to you, how can I get your show? You didn't have on to sell it. On his knees.
0: On his <laughs> in knees. In public. <laughs> in public at an industry convention. And to my great credit, obviously I answered, Stephen, you can't afford it. <laughs> Which is why we then went on to sell it to CBS, right? <laughs> but but that, that really was the moment. When I saw, because I'd known Stephen and, and, when I saw him on his knees in front of me, and obviously it was a kind of joke, both but the exchange, but I just thought, oh, fuck, something's happened here, right? You, you are identified with this show. You really believe in this show. They know that you are it. They know you're the gateway. Something's yeah, changed.
2: You're the guy. You came, you, yeah. yes, I, I can feel that moment. People mm. must have looked at you differently after mm. that.
0: Absolutely. Mm. There you go, gentlemen.
2: So when you're young in entertainment, you think you're smart and they're dumb, right? The the the, the writer, the creator, and the executives are dumb, and da da da. They're Visikoths, they're 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 Bulgarians, and you. Um, but you said something. You said, no wait, they're smart. And so what you find out is, no wait, they're really smart, and it's very hard to 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 do this, and. Very smart people struggling to find very simple ideas,
0: and uh, you know, at the point that it becomes a no-brainer, right? It's it's in my view, it's gone through a lot of work. So, I, although I have an own exclusive, which is the argument of elegance, right? Right. How do you make something right? And yeah, I yeah. I I've worked across both scripted and unscripted genres, but I guess my 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 sort of deep the deepest parts of my career are in the unscripted and there are of the large reality shows that i've touched in my career not one of them took less than 2 years to develop right so i'm talking survivor <laughs> i'm talking big brother which took 3 i'm talking who wants to be a millionaire which took 3 i'm talking got talent which took 2 I'm talking Masterchef, which took 25 years if you travel for the distance from its first appearance on the BBC to what the reality juggernaut that it became today. It's, so the, the back of the cigarette box myth, right, I just scribbled down a few ideas and went for lunch with Lloyd and then he commissioned my series, of course, is, is the outlier and certainly doesn't enter the field of the sort of supermodels of the genre, right? Just They just don't appear.
2: <laughs> well, I could argue that the, the, the thing that bought my house was a, was exactly that. It was a back. But of it's not Yaki
0: a supermodel, ditch, that... Alex, with the greatest respect. So, by def, by definition of <laughs> supermodel, I wanted to go to at least fifteen countries in two years from launch, right? Because okay, when seen that's... from the perspective of the big gro- global groups that I've worked in. For most of my career, so that would be Endemol, Fremantle, Shine, Endemol, Shine. Um, and indeed, now, insofar as I consult for other groups like Media One, the French group, that's what moves the dial. It,
2: it basically, in reality, the business model, in reality, television, the business model is formats. Okay. So, what is the idea, uh, i.e., The Bachelor? There's one. Uh, person, there's a man and he's uh, looking for a wife and there's 20 contestants and they whittle it down to one. So they take that idea and then rather than uh, import or excuse me, export it over for people to watch and then they dub it or whatever, they actually take the DNA of the idea, the logo, the concept, the beats of the story, the way the game is played, if it's a game show and they bring it to a domestic audience. So there'll be a Spanish version, a French version, a German version, and you'll it, like down the line, same music, same beat, same editing, same lighting. It's almost like a franchising of a McDonald's. In a so-
1: way. America's got talent, H yes has got and talent, no, gentlemen. Yes. Got Okay, talent. all yes right, no. good.
2: Tell me now, tell me so now. <laughs> I, I, just want to,
0: I just want to tighten, without wanting to sound professorial, I want to tighten <laughs> a few definitions here. So yep. We're talking about the format licensing business, the format licensing industry, right? And and we're talk what when you say we take the idea, no not quite. What we take is the format itself. We take the recipe that makes mm-hmm. the cake called Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Okay? Mm-hmm. And we license Either to ourselves, to the production companies. So these are this is how these groups work. We license either to production companies in our own group or in territories where we don't have a presence. We license it to other approved production companies, often ones we're later going to buy. And we, <laughs> yeah, because it's a way of forming. Well, I'm the, sorry,
2: our perspective is not on the, the global dominance uh, board of <laughs> risk, right. so we don't buy companies over here. <laughs> so.
0: You, we, you take that, that recipe, and the development of that recipe is a design challenge, essentially, right? You're, you're developing not just the rules, but the look, the feel, the, the in, in its maturity, in the maturity of the industry, we're indeed talking about in, enforcing the use of the same logo, the same music, sometimes the same lighting, sometimes all of it. Yeah, brand. But, but when brands. the industry started... Don't get me started on brands, Alex, because you'll just set off another one. That's, that's
2: the B word, and we'll get into that too.
0: One, once the industry started, when the industry started, it based itself on the historical model of the licensing of theatrical plays for production in different places, right? So it used a, a copyright claim that actually international copyright law does not quite support in relation to scripted television right which is why you occasionally get lawsuits about who owns what but that that recipe allows a company like Fremantle to feed its own global network of production companies and make money in two ways it's making the money off the income from the license of the of the recipe or the format itself and it's making the money out of the out of the local production as well right? And the turning point, although the business started in in theatre historically, it surfaced in radio, so the first format transactions are, in fact, about radio panel games or radio game shows. It sort of begins to flower in the 70s and 80s, specifically around game shows, because they are clearly recipes and patterns and designs. And then by the time I get into the business in the... 80s, that business has become quite widespread, certainly in Europe. And and one of my first jobs was buying American game shows and licensing them for production into the UK and other European countries. It flowers and grows because of the birth of the reality boom, of, of, the, of the genre. So now we're talking mid-90s, when I first go to Hollywood. Um, in And then its greatest period historically probably ends at 2008 when The Voice appears, because the dominant, what I call the supermodels of the format industry in reality terms, emerged specifically in that period, starting with Survivor, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, Idol, Got Talent, um, MasterChef, and a few others culminating or ending with The Voice, which comes from John DeMole. But since then, the number of shows to meet my definition of a supermodel, that is the number of form a format that has travelled to more than twelve countries in less than two years, is almost not visible. You said fifteen, sir. Yeah, fifteen. Fifteen is obviously better in financial terms, right? It's a
2: taller supermodel. Mm. Um, so uh, yes, and, and and thank you for the obviously much more
0: and apologies <laughs> to your audience for the endless lecture. No, no, oh.
2: I I think it's fascinating because uh, you know. Going back to what you said a little bit before, we we are. I mean, one could argue entertainment is always in a state of flux in terms of the business models and the income flow. Um, reality being one of them. You know, when when I started, uh, which was around the same time you were talking about, uh, that was that was the jewel in the crown. But what you're seeing now for a modern creator, and even a modern Fremantle, by the way, who you would think would have the power and leverage of an international stance to be able to negotiate a uh, more advantageous deal for a domestic buyer like a CBS or an NBC. And and historically, that was the case. They would say, well, hey, you want a proven hit? We have uh, this thing called the, you know, uh Australian idol or you know British idol or whatever and you can just put an American prompter on it. And they would. And that was a that was a great formula. Bring it in, import it in. Big Brother's a good example of that. So then now if you pitch a show today to a streamer or an affiliated uh NBC Peacock stream, whatever, whatever, uh they don't want you to have any of that sweet, sweet format money. They want to no. say here's
0: Right? I, I I know that, and I and who can blame them, right? Because they, they recognize <laughs> they figured how out. much money we made. Yeah, <laughs> That's right. right.
2: They see. They figure out where the loopholes are.
1: Yeah, but there's a crazy thing I think that people forget, and don't, well, pr- probably because they weren't alive. But there was a whole group of shows in the '90s that were, and the early 2000s that were reality-based shows. MTV did a lot of these that. Gave people plastic surgery to look like a star that they aspired to be,
0: or like there were the, a uh, lot. The swan, what
2: was it called? The Swan. Oh, they-
0: don't tell, don't mention the Swan, Alex. You, I knew you were going to go straight for a wound. Yes, the Swan <laughs> is the only. I, I'm, I probably shouldn't be saying this, right? But the Swan is the only uh, entertainment format in my lifetime that I actively went after with a great big stake and drove it through its beating heart. <laughs>
1: Wait, why did you kill the? Why did you try to kill the swan? I didn't First try. All, I succeeded. Yeah. So, so, so the swan. They're bastard the swan, birds, by the way. Uh-huh.
0: This one was a Fremantle North America production, in collaboration, in partnership with Nelly, somebody or other, a Latina star, Nelly Galans, Latina producer, and. It had in two in series in
2: association on, with Beelzebub, by the way
0: yeah and it had two seasons on fox right of course yes and the sen- <laughs> the central premise the central premise if you don't remember it was that we take um some we take women and we totally transform them in every way we can we give them like a total body make- makeover weight loss plastic surgery body sculpting hair transplants like everything braces the Everything, everything, everything. Where do you
2: start with the program for Marnie? When I look at her, the first thing I notice is tired.
0: Bags under the eyes. We need to do a mid-face lift. I want to do an upper lip lift and some fat transfer to bring some sensuality and sexiness to her mouth. And we only reveal the result, because they don't get to decide what's going to happen to them, obviously, (laughs) when they meet their family when they're completely made over and then they have to look at themselves in a mirror and that's the sort of... Uh, Cinderella moment of the show, right? that's the big the big reveal. And of course, you would never make that show today because of the mental health concerns and duty of care you would have in relation to those women who by and in many cases, I would say, were of relatively low socioeconomic backgrounds, had clear emotional issues that they projected on to the question of how they looked. So you might call it dysmorphia. And the whole thing was super distasteful because you have no guarantee, if you're working that quickly, how long that work is going to remain in a presentable state once you've carved up that person's face, right? And it was, although commercially lucrative enough, I'm sure, for all concerned in the first two series, including Fremantle, It was really against Fremantle's core value, which was inspiring entertainment. Right? Right. And on those grounds, as I say, I went after it with an inverted crucif with a crucifix and a big stake. Yeah. And I'm happy to say it's never surfaced again. But there are people out there doing worse things now, I would argue, right? So So, more questionable ever thus, ever Mm. thus,
2: right? I mean, there's Mm. there's there's questionable ethics in in every aspect of our business Mm. and our world. Mm. Um, So, kudos to you, by the way. I mean, you 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 saw that that was um, wait. I'm gonna I'm gonna get you. That was off brand.
0: It was so (laughs) off brand, and I mean that. It was also, I thought, extremely distasteful and dangerous, but distasteful and dangerous don't necessarily cut it when you're trying to get a show out of catalogue, does it? So you have to use other arguments, like it's off-brand.
1: Oh, my gosh. Does everyone just feel slightly smarter from listening to Gary Carter talk? It's like listening to a senior professor, a tenured professor, if you will. He's, he's like an international man of mystery. In part two next week... We talk about the 1923 film, Salome, directed by Ala Nazimova, And um, it's a fascinating conversation. You can actually watch this film on YouTube if you want to get caught up before we talk about it. So it's like you're, you're in the group with us, which we like. Anyway, the 1923 film, Salome, and much more brilliant insight from our mentor, our pal, Gary Carter. Thanks for joining us. This has been How I Got Greenlit, season two, episode two, zero, two. And for Alex Collegian, I'm Ryan Gibson. Join us next week. And also remember, at How I Got Greenlit is our Instagram, How I Got Greenlit, Twitter. Send us emails, Greenlit at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We're getting ready to do a question and answer show. We'd like to work something out. Maybe have you on. Ask live questions. Thanks for listening.